Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Sarah Kubrinsky was the 2013-2015 Poet Laureate of Emeryville, California. She is the author of Nighttime on the Other Side of Everything, New Rivers Press, 2019. Her poems and stories have appeared in Magma Poetry, Red Light Lit, 1111, Monkey Bicycle, 82 Review, 100 Word Story, Ford's Review, among many others. She was long-listed for the 2019 University of Canberra Vice-Chancellor's Poetry Prize. She was born in Canada, raised in North Dakota, seasoned in England, and tempered in California. I love that part of your bio. Sarah, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you for having me. What was your first memory of poetry catching your imagination? My parents have always been very playful with language. And they were always, you know, puns. And my mom's favorite pastime was re rewriting or changing the lyrics of popular songs. So there was always a bit of that around. But my first memory of poetry, gosh. Well, the first poem I ever wrote, I was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And it was for my dad. And it was something like, my dad loves bad weather. My dad loves when it rains. And I drew a picture of my father under a, a storm cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so your, your bio mentions living in Canada, North Dakota, England, and now California. How have the differences in these places influenced your writing? Oh, good question. I, I think because I've lived in, you know, three different... English-speaking countries, I'm fascinated by regional idioms. And sometimes I'll say things and people will look at me like, what are you talking about? And then I'll forget that it's something I picked up in England or something that's, you know, strictly Canadian. Or um, So I just love uh, regional language. I love idioms. I play a lot with idioms, so I'm sure you've seen in the book. And that's definitely a direct result of living in three different countries that speak the same language, but in very... Uh, subtly different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that your your the way you use language definitely picks up on those differences and is a really it's really neat that you call that out. So humor can be deceiving. Humor plays a role in many of your poems. And many times humor is a vehicle to communicate something much more serious. One example <laughs> from Ladyoplasty. Next she'll have her teeth, her hair, even her asshole bleached for good measure. You can never be too beautiful, too clean, or too white. From your readings and the Patagonia event that we both participated in, it was a terrific example of where you engage the audience with humor. What effect does humor play in communicating your message, and how deliberate and conscious is that? You know, sometimes I can't help it. <laughs> you know, I'll try, I'll try to, you know, be serious, and you know, you know, some kind of uh, joke or irreverence will emerge. But um, when I grew up, my father is a pediatric cancer doctor. And in that world, uh, it's, it's hard. 
And my, my father has the, the darkest gallows humor, as, you know, as a survival technique, you know, you just have to, you know, sometimes you just have to laugh at things because it's a release. Sometimes it's the only way to swallow something really difficult and uncomfortable is laughing at it. But yeah, I, and also, you know, being Canadian and living in the UK, they they are have a very dark sense of humor there. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> very sarcastic. And, you know, I've, I've just been exposed to that. And like I said, I think I just grew up in an, an environment where humor was a survival technique, you know, just to, you know, to really deal with difficult things. And you also incorporate in your, and this is uh, for listeners, I strongly encourage you to go seek out uh, Sarah's performance at the Patagonia uh, Poet Laureate Celebration, which is on Viewless Wings and on an earlier episode of the podcast, uh, where you actually engage the audience in a very humorous way. Is that something that was just that one poem you've read, or is that a technique you've used in other poems where you where you actually get the audience to participate in the poem? You know, I think that started a little bit before the pandemic because, um, you know, poetry readings, you know, can can be can be dry. Or can be, it, you know, it's hard to just sit and listen, especially to poetry. When and when you have an evening of, say, four plus authors, it's really hard to give them the attention they deserve, every single writer. Um, so I feel like I love breaking it up. I mean, with, when did it start? I think the first time it started, I it wasn't a poem, but I read, I wrote this essay about, um, when I was training to become a perinatal yoga instructor and we had to have a pelvic floor workshop. And uh, I was horrified at the idea that one could have a prolapsed uterus. And I, you know, I came home from the workshop and I said to my husband, we're never having kids. Did you know that your uterus can fall out of your body? And he said, yeah, of course I do. Cause he grew up on you know, around animals. Yeah, I've seen it all the time. It happens to cows, but don't worry. He's like, you just take a couple sticks, you know, take the uterus, you know, shove the horns back up into the fallopian tubes, you know, put some sugar on the uterus to stop the swelling and you'll be fine. Of course, that's what you do with the cow. And um, so, and when I was reading that exercise, I led the whole cafe in doing Kegel exercise. And after that, I thought, you know, it's just fun. You know, it's just fun to to stand up to to just, you know, feel like you're a part of what's going on. I mean, because the poem is uh, a piece of art, but then the moment you're telling it, the moment of the telling is also an art. And so I just, it's just fun to 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 be childlike, to do silly things, to, um, yeah. So it's fairly new, but I enjoy it. Yeah, no, it's inspired me to think of a way to do it. I'm doing a, a pretty lengthy reading in a couple of weeks, and I'm thinking of how I can actively engage the audience. It was I thought it was super effective. It really got people leaning in and attentive and engaged. It's great. <laughs> so I, I read an interview where you discussed growing up in an Orthodox Jewish household. How has Judaism influenced the themes in your writing? Wow. Okay, that's a big question. Yeah, I was in, in a very religious community, probably until I was about 12. You know, didn't wear pants, kept strict kosher. Oh, if I were to say I don't wear pants in England, they would think I wasn't wearing, like, trousers. Because pants in England means underwear. As an example of 
language changes. Yes. So when I say we didn't wear pants, what I mean is we didn't wear trousers. You know, we wore skirts. You know, we're you know young girls expected to do that. How has it influenced me? It's just you know it was my primary socialization, the Torah, all those stories, all the marking of the of the seasons with the various holidays. It's just so ingrained in me. It's yeah, it's a part of me, like it or not. Yeah. It's just it's just in the hopper. <laughs> it's just in the mix. It's almost impossible to to unthread it and figure out what the influence is. I can understand that. Yeah. So I I. Uh, uh, we, we talked about this, that you I thoroughly enjoyed your performance at the Patagonia Poet Laureate Celebration and how you engaged listeners. How did you learn how to perform your poetry more generally? And and uh, in my own experience, uh, a couple of years ago, I hired a poetry coach to help me because I, uh, who's also a theater graduate and, and uh, competes in poetry competitions. And I, my self-assessment was I was dreadful. Uh, at reading my poetry, and I'm sure we're all very self-critical more than is fair, but I think it was fairly fair to say I was pretty flat as a, and I think I've gotten a lot better and I've still got work to do, but what has been your approach to making the performances of your poetry build them up rather than bring them down? I'm actually an incredibly shy person. (laughs) I hide hide it well. Mm -hmm. But um, I think... I don't know if you've ever seen this in a detective show where the person or the criminal who's speaking very slowly is more like, is sometimes more scary than the person who is raging, you know, who is kind of more controlled and very quiet, you know, um, kind of makes you listen to the person who's talking. So I don't, um, I, I, I somehow, I slow it down. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess that's, I, I don't think about it too much, but I do, I will slow down what I, what I'm reading sometimes. And, uh, gosh, I don't know. I've, I've just been sort of, um, throwing myself into performance spaces since I was really young, you know, when I was in England, you know, in back rooms of pubs, you know, that were really loud or, or, you know, um, just always putting my hair in that way. So, um, my friend Betty, who is a poet, um, she always said that what she took from me reading was just slowing it down, uh, just slowing it down and uh, looking. I like to look at if I can, if I can see people in the room and sort of feel how they're feeling. And so it's, it's sometimes if I'm doing a reading and I and I'll, I don't generally always choose my poems before. I'll have a sort of a, a general selection. But we'll try to intuit the the energy of the room, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, do they need something funnier? Do they need something more serious? Whatever. No, know? that's definitely advice I've gotten is to I I speak East Coast fast and I have to consciously slow myself down. What feels really slow to me is average speed for listeners, and I have to keep reminding myself of that. <laughs> so uh, many of the poems in uh, Nighttime and the Other Side of Everything are compact and impactful. In X and Y Have Another Fight, the title provides critical context, and in Domestic Violence, you write, Her face reminded him of the red velvet cake she made that night. It was all he could do to keep from... 
and there's an M dash. Um, when writing short poems, do you tend to start with something longer and then edit to a short poem, or do you start with the intention of writing something short? It just it felt that way from the beginning because writing impactful short poems is really hard. Um, you know, I, I'd say I do both. Sometimes it'll arrive very short and whatever, and sometimes it'll be very long. And I'm a big fan of pare down, pare down, pare down. Less is more, less is more, less is more. Um, yeah, I, I, and, and it actually, I think, you know, when I was first starting to write, you just want to hang on to every word that you birthed, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and now I, I have, a, uh, a detachment where it's just easy, like, nope, that's not working, not working. And, you know, I can put it somewhere else or throw it away entirely and, and, and having a bit of distance. So it's, it doesn't kill me every time. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I definitely found that when I uh, edit something and at the moment I'm editing, I'm like, oh God, I thought that was so clever. And, but then minutes later, I will completely forget whatever that thing I cut was. And that's a pretty good sign that, yep, that was a good edit because I can't even remember what the heck it was. I have to look at my Google Docs revision history to even find out what I had uh, previously. So you write about very personal and tragic subjects in some cases. In The Great Pace, you write, and you were mambling under your breath. Mambling, that was your word. Prayers that made sense only for you. Your observations of a family member battling addiction is very moving. How do you approach the revision and editing of such a personal memory? And how is your sharing this memory impacting readers facing similar challenges? That's a tough question. Well, you know, and and that's an example of where my orthodox life came out. You know, just the stories that shape, shape my world. Because in that poem... Uh, I imagine, you know, Orthodox Jews, the the men wear phylacteries, the leather that they put around their heads and around their arms. And then I always thought when they're wrapping their arms in leather that they were, they were prayer junkies. Mm. And, uh, and so that image just reminded me of my, my brother who was, who was a recovering heroin addict. I guess, I mean, that's how, I mean, that's an example of how my Orthodox background feeds my work now. But I, I haven't had anybody uh, like directly tell me about their own experiences with addiction or uh, their relatives experience with addiction from that poem. But uh, sometimes I think sometimes we're afraid to write about family or people close to us that they, they might see it or misinterpret it or, Mm -hmm. and I, I try, I try not to think about that as I'm getting things down to sort of, you know, write it, deal with the consequences later. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, no, it is, it is very challenging when, because we all, I think every poet incorporates a lot of their personal experiences are woven in and the poetry wouldn't exist without them. And yeah, it's a, it's very tricky sometimes knowing where to draw the line and where not to, and then, but ultimately be true to the poetry. So that was, mm-hmm. it was very interesting hearing the, some of the backstory and other elements of that poem that I didn't understand or appreciate from a first reading. So you successfully placed many of the poems in your book and then convinced a publisher to turn your manuscript into a book. book. Both are very impressive accomplishments. Uh, that all poets are seeking. Uh, what have you learned about publishing your poetry in this journey? What have I learned? 
you know, for, for a while I worked at an architecture firm and I was in the interior design department. I wasn't a designer and I'm not an architect. I was there as sort of in a administrative slash marketing capacity. And this is a very large firm. And there were at that time about 80 people in the interiors department. So these are some, you know, big experts on color and shape, et cetera. And, uh, everybody would turn up in black every day. And I said to my colleague, the woman who shared the cubicle with me, and I said, hey, Emily, like, what's the deal? You guys are like the world's expert on color. Why are you wearing black? <laughs> and she said, well, like it or not, we subconsciously are drawn to color palettes or to colors um, that we are wearing. And so by having something... I don't want to say neutral because black isn't neutral, but having something that doesn't have an obvious color palette stops you from doing that. Hmm. And so I, I, I feel like that was a big lesson in um, when you're submitting works to journals or to whomever that I imagine all the editors are not all the editors are wearing their black and they're wearing the colors of their emotional palette. And so I, you know, and I think that really drives their choices or what they're drawn to. And in other words, I try not to take it personally when I'm rejected. Like this person is drawn to whatever poem in that moment because of the emotional color they're wearing, if that makes sense. Oh, my God. What a terrific answer and a way to look at it. That's, that is going to be... Uh... Because I've heard many answers about, you know, it's a numbers game and there's just so many submitted. And as a result, even the best, there's going to be lots of good things that aren't selected. And that's all true. But that's a wonderful image, very poetic image that that I, that's going to stick with me for a while. So during your tenure as Emeryville's Poet Laureate, what did you learn about being a Poet Laureate that you can, you know, pass along? Myself, I'm in the middle of my term as uh, City of Dublin's Poet Laureate, and I'm is interested in this personally and for other folks that are either considering applying to be a poet laureate or have the role and are figuring out what to do with it. What did you learn during your tenure? I think it's wonderful that a lot of city councils are choosing to have a poet laureate, recognizing that, ooh, the arts are important and that, you know, poetry is important. Emeryville is a very unique place. They really, really value and cherish their artists, not just writers, but their visual artists. They have a big annual visual art show every year. And so even though um, I'm not Poet Laureate anymore, I still do an ekphrastic poetry workshop every year where we go into their Emeryville's annual art show and write poems inspired by the, the art that year. Um, so what have I learned? One of the, the, challenge, the challenging things I had was, you know, I'd read at sort of official events, you know, and the, the, the toughest reading I ever did was the lighting of the tree. And the only thing between um, the children and meeting Santa Claus was me and my holiday poem. Toughest crowd ever. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, and then I also realized that, um, well, I was always afraid of, you know, I, I just didn't know what a municipal poem could be or should be. 
And then, and then I realized that it's, you don't, you just have to stay true to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're writing poems for official events, just stay true to who, who you are and the way you write, you know, but what did I learn? I also learned, I mean, not just from the laureateship, but just standing up in front of a room of people anyway, just the fact that you're standing up in front of a room full of people, they will automatically hand over a bit of authority to you. They're automatically ready to trust you and believe in you. And that's comforting. That's a that's a terrific reminder. And I've certainly felt that in a couple of the official events. And I, you know, I took great care to make good use of the time. But yes, they're, they're, they're rooting for you to to do well. They're not antagonistic. So yeah. now I'm going to pass the mic over to you to share several selections from your book. So this is a poem called A Poem for John Who Writes in Elevens. And it's for John Oliver Simon, who was a beloved Berkeley poet. And he died maybe a year before the pandemic. He was 75 years old. And he devoted his entire adult life to poetry He was very much involved in the California poets in the schools. And he just championed younger writers. And whenever he would be invited to a reading, even into well into, you know, to his very last readings, he always recited everything from heart. He never brought any paper with him or any books. And he would just recite, you know, lines and lines and lines of verse. And it would just make, you know, put the rest of us to shame. You know, I'm sure that a lot of us poets, we labor labor over our poems and, you know, we know every word and line, but there's something about having the, the safety of a, a piece of paper or a book when you're up in front of other people. But he wouldn't. He would get up there and recite without anything. And uh, for the last, the last while of his life, he wrote these um, poems Uh, that had 11-syllable lines. So, and they were sonnets, so they were 14 lines long, each line 11 syllables. But this poem I wrote for him, it's 11 lines, and each uh, line is 11 syllables. And it's my my, uh, tribute to John, who was just such a beloved, local, unofficial poet laureate of Berkeley, (laughs) you know. So a poem for John who writes in 11s. There are 11 syllables in this line. 1111, my dear, make a wish. This is also a dear John letter, dear John, but not that kind of a dear John letter, John. I just wanted to feel your form, try you on, count and count again the stars in Joseph's dream. Did you see any stars when you were under? Are you any lighter now that growth is gone? Once I heard of a man who kept his tumor on his mantle in a jar next to his wife. He wished on it like on a star, called it John. So my next poem is called Nuts to That. And myself and three other poets were invited to view the um, Speakeasy San Francisco interactive theater experience show about gosh, maybe five years ago. And it was an incredible, incredible space, an incredible uh, theater experience. 
So this was, um, each of us poets were tasked with following a, one character around the entire evening. And so this is based on the, the character that I followed through this immersive theater experience. And it's called Nuts to That. Through the grandfather clock, through the looking glass, behind closed doors, under wraps, be careful, the walls have ears. No, really, the walls have ears. See over there, that mirror? Pick up the re receiver, what do you hear? The still small voice of your heart sure speaks easy, no? The voice that says, I could have been somebody, like that giant Giannini. Well, in this gin joint, you are somebody. We won't stifle the likes of Gustav Eiffel or any ordinary guy chasing after the American dream, holding out his empty hands for the next sawbuck, the next big win, the next big ship to come in. Through the grandfather clock, through the highball glass, inside coat pockets at the craps, a bottle of hooch with just enough burn, but won't make you blind. On the contrary, it'll make you see you're still in the game, still going strong, your hopes and dreams distilled into one moment, one card, one chip, double down, double down, and then it's gone. My last poem is the most accurate portrait I have ever written about my family. I will say uh, that since I wrote this poem, I have quit smoking. I just need to say that. <laughs> many, many years ago, I quit smoking. But this poem is called Jesus Smokes. My father, the cancer doctor, sits at the head of the table, coughing like his father, a cancer doctor, coughed in the oxygen tent in the room in the hospital in Canada. My grandfather, a Russian immigrant famous for his anglophilia, leaned out of his oxygen tent with his riding crop and whispered through cancerous spittle, my son, you must become a doctor. My father, who didn't want to become a doctor, sits at the head of the table coughing up white smoke. It's Passover and everyone's on their third glass of wine. In his best Rabbi Burkle voice, my father chants a blessing then says, Jesus smokes. Now the Jesus reference is weird because we're Jewish, but my father, the cancer doctor, he's famous for saying things that are weird like, Jesus smokes. Myself and my five siblings, all confirmed smokers, and our mother, an ex-smoker, sit around our father, the non-smoker, smoking. Our father, the cancer doctor, who likes to be referred to as the blood count, clears his throat and looks upon our ashen faces. Just as Jesus died for the people's sins, I cough for my children's smoke. Jesus smokes. Our father, the Jewish doctor, sits at the head of the table and chants another blessing. My children, you must never become doctors. 
So my sister, the chain smoker, and my mother, the ex-smoker, and my brother, the social smoker, and my eldest brother, the I'm so broke, I roll my own smoker, and my youngest brother, the chronic pot smoker, and my other brother, the I just quit, so can I have one of yours, smoker, and me, the I feel so guilty because I smoke, smoker, all agree to never become doctors. Our father, the would-be witch doctor, sits at the head of the table and instructs us in his bathrobe to pour the fourth glass of wine. Blessed are you, ruler of the universe, who doctored the fruit of the vine. And for a moment, none of us are smoking. Elijah's wind moves through the room and everything is silent. Our father, the cancer doctor, sits at the head of the table, laughing like his father, the cancer doctor, laughed when he heard the news he was going to have a son who might, God willing, be a doctor someday. Jesus smokes. Oh, I love that poem when I first heard it at the Patagonia Poet Laureate Celebration. I loved hearing it again, the way you perform it. And uh, humor is such a difficult thread to weave into poetry. I have a lot of respect for stand-up comedians and the the way they hone and hone and hone it. It takes, you know, a year plus to come up with a good 45 minutes. It's just really much harder than people realize. So a couple of questions about that. Uh, are there some poets that incorporate humor that you're particularly inspired by? Or as Billy Collins has said, you know, read poetry that that you're jealous of, that you want to, that you want to uh, reach for, and then, and then, are there um, in the in the editing and revision process? How do you approach getting the humor just right? Is it pure instinct, or do you have an approach that a way of sort of determining if you're getting it right? Inspiration, Stevie Smith. I love her poems. I just absolutely love them. And you know, uh, sometimes. Um, quote-unquote, funny poetry gets confused with light verse. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I find that problematic because some, sometimes just because a poem has an element of humor or is funny doesn't mean that it's kind of a throwaway, ha-ha, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I love Stevie Smith, huge, huge inspiration. And the editing process, to this day, I, I write every single thing by hand. So I'd say the bulk of the paring down happens when I finally get down to typing it up on a computer. It's part instinct, you know, it's very visual for me, like what, how I, I always am considering the visual element of a poem in addition to the uh, arranging it that, so when it's said, it, it, it has the, the, the music that I want. But I'm, I'm very anal about how it looks visually. There has to be some kind of compositional balance just looking at it on a page. And I think that definitely influences my editing process. But yeah, I'd say instinct, you know. And then yeah. building on the visual side, which of course, given we're a podcast, uh, I can't hold up and show you the poetry, but I do encourage people to go buy Sarah's book. In terms of when you have a a piece of the poem that's either very important and impactful and you want it to be amplified, or it's a piece of humor that you want to get the the timing right. How does that influence how you, you make use of the tool we have in poetry that prose doesn't have 
of how you visualize it on the page? You know, sometimes I would say that I would, I, I have the last lines first. And sometimes I know where I want to go. And that, that really drives the shape structure of the poem. That I, and I don't want to be like, oh, it's a surprise every time it just happens. I mean, because I do have, obviously, at this point, some control over, over what I'm doing. I guess sometimes I'm not always aware that it's funny right interesting. away. Interesting. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Or, or uh, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really dark. And this is really, really funny. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people say this, that they don't know what they're writing about or what they think about something until it's finished. You know, and that's the, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard, I've heard other writers say that. Oh, it's definitely the case with me. I will, um, I, I, I used to write exclusively longhand on paper and then I started getting hyper productive, like at midnight or I'd wake up in the middle of the night and especially during the pandemic and stressed out, couldn't get back to sleep. So the only practical thing to do is to write on my phone in Google docs on dark mode. So I wouldn't oh, wake wow. up, wouldn't wake up my wife. And what was interesting about that is it's very hard to deal with visualization on a phone. So I would just focus on words and images and, and it was actually quite helpful. And then I would then revisit the poem a second when I got it, when I got it in a full computer, then I would actually start working on what the heck this thing is, but I wouldn't get hung up with that initially. So, uh, yeah, you're, I think I've heard that from many poets is you don't really know what the heck you're writing until afterwards and you start crafting it into something. And even then you <laughs> sometimes you don't know what it is and other people tell you what it is. All yeah, right. It just sounds cool. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm so driven by sound and mm -hmm. the music of things first, you know, I'll, I'll hear something or I'll write something that I just, yeah, I like how that sounds. And I, it, I have may have no idea what the meaning is or, or, but I just, just like that as a, as a piece of, um, auditory candy, you know? Yeah. Well, definitely since, uh, an interview I did with Olivia Gatwood last year and she really emphasized reading things out loud and as did A.E. Yeah. Stallings, I didn't do that earlier because I never performed my poetry till really a couple of years ago. And now I, 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 aggressively read my poetry out loud and test it against family members whether they want me to or not and it makes such a difference um, yeah. to read it out loud and hear it uh, so just a couple more things so nuts to that has such a 1920 sound uh, perfectly complements the speakeasy theme and i loved hearing the backstory and uh, so what role does research play in your poetry and i think it is i asked this question several times of different interviews i think it plays much more of a role than people realize Research is a fun way to be writing, but not writing. <laughs> That's a fun way to, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's so great that if you're, you, 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 you're out in the world and you see something that tickles your fancy and then you can go to the internet or go and, and just learn more about it. And it's such a good way to fill out whatever it is in that poem nuts to that. A lot of that was, you know, inspired completely from the experience. I mean, they had done their research. The whole place was just, you were in a speakeasy. It was incredible, but it's a fun way to, it's a fun thing to do when you, when you want to write, but you can't write or aren't, you know, I don't know, just to feed the well. But I've also heard that research can be dangerous. You can do it too much and avoid the actual writing of the thing. 
Yeah, I think that there's a risk of getting lost in the research or too dependent on it, and there's a, there's definitely a balance. So finally, what are you uh, working on now? Um, so um, in the pandemic, I feel like there are two writers in the pandemic, writers who wrote more than they've ever written before, and then the writers who had little children. <laughs> <laughs> and the kids who were on Zoom school. So... Um, I, I wrote a lot. I, you know, I wrote a lot of, I did manage both, even though I have a small child. I wrote a lot of prose, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And I am working on uh, a longer prose piece, uh, novel length, you know, and is it strictly memoir? Is it a novel? I will see when it's finished. But um that's what I'm working on. And I also have, I'm slowly building another collection of poems, but prose poems. Well, thank you so much for spending a few minutes to share your poetry and your story with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed your book and enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for having me. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.